Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I've got something super special for you today because you're going to learn about how a group of daisy relatives native to California made it to Hawaii and became the amazing Silver Sword Alliance. You may have seen pictures of the Hawaiian Silver Swords, but if you haven't, take a moment and look them up because they are incredible looking plants and you would never guess that they were related to the tarweeds growing in California. But that's where people like my guest today come in. Joining us is Dr. Bruce Baldwin. He's a professor at UC Berkeley and also the curator of the Jepson Herbarium, and he has devoted most of his research career to understanding the evolution and diversification of these incredible plants. And I don't want to spoil any of it, but I'm just going to tell you what we talk about today is incredible. If you have any interest in biology, evolution, diversification, this is one heck of a conversation for you. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Baldwin. I hope you enjoy. I was just handling embryos of relatives of the silver sword right before you hooked in here. We're That's awesome. Growing up a lot. Yeah, we're growing up a lot of uh, California tarweeds right now for a genomic study. Very cool. In uh, gel culture or seed no, germination? Just, uh, just seed germination, but sometimes they need to be coaxed out of their <laughs> seeds. And yeah, that has to be done with insect pins under a dissecting scope. They're pretty small and you have to get all the membranes off around them to get, you know, all of the abscisic acid or whatever the, yeah. away from them that's been, you know, preventing them from germinating. Huh. Some significant dormancy in some of them. I was just going to say they have some pretty big preventative measures there then, huh? Yeah, you know, it's a Mediterranean climate and it's pretty, you know, they have some um, significant uh, cues that they need, you know, to germinate. Right on. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. All right. Um, so yeah, you, you, you ready? Sure. Okay. Dr. Bruce Baldwin, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. How about we start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate being on your show. Um, yeah. So I'm a professor in integrative biology at Berkeley and curator of the Jepson Herbarium here, which is a museum focused on the California flora in particular, the native and naturalized flora. But I also have interests in the Hawaiian flora, and they're primarily focused around those lineages that have uh, Western North American origin originally. So, yeah, it all ties together, even though it might seem a little strange <laughs> to have a Californian Hawaiian focus. <laughs> That's and exciting. So, yeah. Yeah, and I've been doing this since 1985, since I started my PhD at Davis. And, uh, you know, I've been really fortunate to be able to continue working on uh, floristics and plant evolution for all this time. <laughs> That's excellent. And what got you started in all of this? I mean, were you kind of a genetics, sort of molecular biology, interested in questions of evolution? Or did you kind of come to it through plants and ecology and just wondering why there's so many different species on this planet? <laughs> yeah, so my original interest in botany was very floristic. And I grew up in Central California in San Luis Obispo County. Okay. So uh, kind of right in the heart of the California floristic province and, you know, a lot of endemism in the flora there. And just exposed constantly to lots of plant diversity and backpacking trips in the Santa Lucia range and San Rafael Mountains as a kid. And just, you know, got interested and especially after taking a course in vegetation and flora of California it's UC Santa Barbara that was a course Bob Haller put together it was very it was an inspirational course for lots of botanists that are late career people now <laughs> and uh, yeah and from there I ended up moving to Alaska for a few years and getting interested in that flora wow and then decided to go to grad school and came to Davis and Don Kaios my major professor First time I met him, handed me a book by Jens Clausen on stages in the evolution of plant species, and the tarweeds figured prominently there hmm. from the early Clausen, Keck, and Heise work that was done at the Carnegie Institution of Washington at Stanford. And he had been there himself uh, as a postdoc and got interested in tarweeds and worked on them, and also silver swords, their relatives. Uh, he had worked on those as well, and so. It was kind of a natural progression since I'd grown up around tarweeds and 
had an interest already. I just kind of took to it like a fish to water. <laughs> <laughs> and I just kind of never looked back. Wow. Yeah, those are pretty <laughs> magical moments in anyone's history that they can kind of pinpoint a moment where this sort of took off. And uh, you have a, a an entire career under your belt of, of really kind of from that point. That's That's pretty remarkable. Well, he was such a wonderful mentor and so encouraging without being... Um, you know, he just gave me a lot of independence and lots of encouragement through the entire process. And I was very much in a good position at that time because Davis very strong in plant genetics. And that was right, the, right at the moment where molecular systematics was just in its infancy in the early to mid 80s. And by the mid 80s, you know, there was some work that had been done with chloroplast DNA to look at plant relationships. And um, I took a class from a professor in agronomy and range sciences, Jan Dvorak, on plant chromosomes, which I was interested in. My major professor was too. And, and um, in the course of that, I talked to one of his grad students and he said, hey, look at this work I just did with Jeff Palmer at Stanford before I came here. And he was using chloroplast DNA to look at relationships in the nightshade family and so I decided that's what I would try to apply to looking at this question of what the relationships were of this silver sword alliance in the Hawaiian islands and whether it really did relate to the California tarweeds as had been suggested, you know, long ago. Hmm. I mean, it wasn't easy to get going on that. There were <laughs> yeah. a lot of obstacles, but it eventually bore fruit. So wow. I didn't really come into it as a, with a molecular or genetic interest per se, more of a cytogenetic interest, and then it moved into more of a molecular hmm. genetic interest. But I'm still really interested in plant chromosomes as well. Yeah, it's fascinating, especially from a botanical perspective, because I feel like plants are getting away with a lot of weird genetic stuff that just simply would not fly in animals, especially vertebrate animals, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And they're just very amenable to work with, you know. They don't sting or stink or bite or anything like that. So I did a little bit of hanging around with zoologists when I was an undergrad in the field. I also had a really formative experience as an undergrad out in the Mojave Desert working uh, on a flora of the Old Dad uh, Mountain, Kelso Mountains region, which is now within the Mojave National Preserve. And um, there were others out there studying other aspects of the biodiversity, including the mammals and I hung around with those guys a bit in the field and, you know, had to help catch bats and <laughs> um, deal with uh, euthanizing animals, Ooh. you know, for specimens. And I wanted, I knew I was interested in collecting and, you know, systematics and that kind of thing. I realized early on, you know, that's not really going to cut it for me. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not really into inflicting a lot of pain and suffering. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh commendable <laughs> thank you for well, I mean, it was it was it was a good experience to make me sure i didn't want to do that oh yeah i often think that helping your friends do their science or just getting a cool internship or something it's almost more useful to figure out what you do not want to do versus what you enjoy doing because right. you can just eliminate a lot of things <laughs> right you know the pollinators that's another thing i mean they are animals of course and you know i have an interest there but yeah, no vertebrates, as far as we know, involved in pollination of any of the plant groups I've mm. focused on. Right on. And before we jump into sort of the meat of it, you know, you mentioned tarweeds and silver soids. I'm super excited to talk to you about that. You mentioned chloroplast DNA and why that might be useful. So, I mean, I don't know, honestly, very much about these sort of methods, but has that changed much over the years? And why, at, at least at that point in time, was chloroplast DNA sort of the way or at least uh, the, the the focus of sort of these uh, genetic research? Yeah, it was really mainly a matter of methodological limitations back then, you know, because we didn't have DNA sequencing. And at least uh, we had DNA sequencing, of course, it was figured out over a decade before I started working as a grad student in research. But, you know, PCR hadn't been invented yet. And oh, wow. so... Yeah, I mean, the ability to amplify DNA from small amounts of material was still, you know, in the future, a few years when I got started. And so you really were faced with dealing with whole genomic DNA, what you could learn from it directly wow. without any kind of amplification procedure. And so chloroplast DNA is abundant within plants. You know, every chloroplast has some and 
And so it's it's there in high copy number and it's highly conserved structurally in terms of gene order and all, although there are some amazing, you know, rearrangements that have happened, including within the sunflower family, there's one significant rearrangement, but it's uh, an early rearrangement in the history of the group. So it didn't really factor into the clade, young clade I was working in. Hmm. And so, yeah, we basically had to cut the DNA with restriction enzymes and then map the restriction sites uh, using a number of approaches, running these long gels to separate out the DNA fragments from the digestions and then transferring the fragments from the gel onto nitrocellulose paper and nylon filters <laughs> and then hybridizing them with radioactively labeled probes, Wow! which were also a challenge to generate in sufficient quantity to be able to use for basically walking around the genome. You would basically hybridize these onto the southern blots, they're called, and then expose those to x-ray film for a while. And and then uh, after that was done and you basically develop your x-ray film, then you go ahead and strip off the probes and do it again with a different probe and just walk around the genome that oh, way. Man. And so what you're looking for were mutations within those restriction sites, whether the restriction site was present or absent. And, uh, you know, if it was absent, you'd have a longer fragment and if they were present, you know, you'd have two fragments that would add up to the size of the larger fragment that would be there if you didn't have that site. So you would just basically be inferring mutations and using those mutations to reconstruct relationships. And it's uniparentally inherited, generally, the Mm. chloroplast DNA. At least there's no recombination that goes on uh, between different, you know, molecules of different sequence to the extent that you have the kinds of complexity that you get with the nuclear genome. So, you know, it was it was relatively easy to work with. But the problem, it turned out, was that, you know, after we enough of these trees had been generated, like, you know, phylogenetic trees, so we came to realize early on, and it was a clear right away with the silver sword data, that um, the phylogenetic trees didn't match very well what we thought we knew about the relationships in some important regards. And uh, came to be well under, better understood that the whole chloroplast genomes can be basically moved from one lineage into another by introgressive hybridization. <laughs> and so if you have these dynamics, like in islands where you have plants dispersing into an island area where there's a close relative that's interfertile and you're somewhat separated from it ecologically, but you're within flight distance of pollinators and you're interfertile, you know, you're, and they flower at the same time, you know, you can get enough um, biased hybridization and backcrossing going on to basically wow. replace the chloroplast genome within, you know. And so those kinds <laughs> of problems became really evident. And, you know, the nuclear DNA was definitely where people wanted to go after a while to a much greater extent. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really cool insight to get. And sort of like you said, the early days of this sort of technology coming on board and from just a purely academic research perspective, I would be curious to know, has your job gotten easier because of the technology in some ways, but also harder because now you are able to answer much bigger, more nebulous questions than before? Sort of this trade off between (laughs) access and questioning. (laughs) Yeah, so it's definitely become easier in some ways and more difficult in other (laughs) ways. So the actual molecular work has become much easier uh, and you can get so much more data so much more quickly, um, you know, a lot more bang for your buck. But uh, with that larger amount of data, you know, comes greater computational challenges and analytical challenges that, um, you know, I mean, the the field is just nothing like it was in mm-hmm. the 80s when it started when, you know, we were dealing strictly within a parsimony framework which is basically just, you know, trying to construct the simplest trees that require the fewest <laughs> evolutionary steps. And, you know, it's a very heuristically satisfying approach that's super intuitive and, you know, lends itself to really looking under the hood and understanding everything that's going on there. Whereas now we're dealing with much more sophisticated approaches to looking at relationships, you know, involving much more data. And so, Really, the challenges are more on the computational side than on the uh, data generation side, as far as, you know, the day-to-day work in the lab, especially. Yeah, 
Yeah, I uh, I hear you on that end. <laughs> right, and who wants to be exposed to radioisotopes all the time? Not I. You know, that was, you know working with P32 and S35 regularly, you know, you always kind of felt like you were, you know, there was a bit of a Faustian bargain there, you know, <laughs> yeah. or endangering your health to learn the secrets of the plants. <laughs> do, you, do you glow when the lights get turned off? <laughs> uh, fortunately, not that I've noticed. I haven't noticed any strange growths or anything, <laughs> at least, you know, so far, knock on wood. But, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm rooting you know, for you and your but, colleagues. Thanks. Yeah. So we've already hinted at it, the Silver Sword Alliance. And if any of my listeners are at all botanically curious, which they probably are, they're inevitably going to come across at least a mention of that. Or if you've been to Hawaii and fortunate enough to see them in person, it's it's a group of plants that stand out just even on a visual basis. But there's so much more to them. So let's begin there. You mentioned that someone had started talking about this. There were some known relationships or at least hypothesized relationships. Where did the silver sword interest, I guess, begin for you? And, and what sort of the, were the questions at that point in time? Yeah, so it was, it was really right when I got started with my graduate research in the mid-80s. Um, 1985, I made my first trip over there and started collecting them and seeing them in the field. And, you know, that was just mind-blowing to see. You know, I knew the California tar weeds pretty well by then. And to see these things that had been hypothesized to be California tar weeds, it's really pretty um, amazing And uh, because they are so different. And it gave me greater respect for the people that suggested that relationship in the first place, hmm. you know, starting with Asa Gray back in the mid-1800s. Wow. Yeah, who, who classified our gyrosithium, the true silver swords and green swords, which we can talk about, with uh, California tarweeds. He put them in subtribe Medione Amazing. with the, all those things. And, but then later, you know, that, that, that idea fell out of favor. Um, there was a much stronger sentiment in the biogeographic world. The long-distance dispersal of oceanic magnitude was, you know, almost preposterous <laughs> in that you know, these kinds of island disjunctions and island endemism probably reflect plants that became stranded in those locations due to old land bridges, you know, basically disappearing and that sort of thing. So, yeah, so it really wasn't until about 100 years later that Sherwin Carlquist at the Rancho Santa Ana Botanic Garden, which is now the California Botanic Garden in Claremont, California, through his plant anatomical studies, came to appreciate that that relationship between the silver swords in Hawaii and the California tarweeds really was, you know, a, a valid hmm. hypothesis. And so that idea was definitely well supported by his work, but it wasn't universally accepted. I can definitely tell you that. And the nature of the relationship between the two groups was still unclear exactly how close the relationship was. Um, you know, it was clear they were closest relatives. I mean, if you take them together, but uh, whether the silver swords were related to one part of the California tarweeds or uh, sister to the whole group, you know, that they shared a common ancestor, but have completely diversified independently. Mm. That part was unclear. And so that was an idea I was really interested in, in trying to examine in more detail. And it hadn't really been easy to deal with using more traditional, you know, systematic approaches so that was one of the major questions I was interested in. And then just better understanding the evolutionary diversification in Hawaii, because this group is amazing. And most people don't realize, people that have been to Hawaii and been up to the Haleakala National Park has probably seen the silver swords there, which are these thick-leaved rosette plants with silvery, hairy leaves that look a lot like yuccas, <laughs> put up a big flowering stock at the end of their lives, like a like many monocarpic plants that flower once and then die with a spectacular capitulescence or an inflorescence of heads, you know, that are very colorful and amazing. But they don't know that the group actually includes all these other plants in the Hawaiian Islands that don't look anything like the silver swords, you know, at least at first notice. And Actually, they weren't all thought to be a natural group until the uh, 1900s. I mean, David Keck suggested it first, and then Sherwin Carlquist again made the strongest case for it with anatomy. 
but we're talking trees, shrubs of all kinds, you know, lianas, cushion plants, mat forming plants, all these things. And they pretty much span the environmental spectrum in the Hawaiian islands from, you know, arguably the potentially wettest place on earth, you know, the summit above of Waialeale on Kauai, the oldest high island, to, um, you know, desert-like environments and other parts on the leeward sides of some of the younger islands and some of these alpine situations. <laughs> so, you know, you just get this unbelievable diversity and the leaves just themselves, if you lay them all out from the group, you get everything from what looks like a monocot, a grass-like monocot leaf with perfectly parallel leaf venation and few cross-connecting veinlets in Wilksia, which are these strange rosette plants that have fibrous rosettes on Kauai in these drier habitats, to in the vine, the liana, the woody vine, the baudiolatifolia, you get these um, beautiful drip tip normal eudicot, you know, <laughs> rainforest looking leaves with reticulate venation, you know, amazing contrast there just in the venation patterns of the leaves alone. So all of that anatomical and ecological and life form diversity is found in this group we call the Hawaiian Silver Sword Alliance. <laughs> and that includes three genera, not just Argyrosiphium, but also Wilksia that I just mentioned. And then Dabaudia, which is this group that takes in all kinds of diversity across all six of the major high Hawaiian islands. So you get that that group spread across the entire chain with most of them being single island endemics. Wow. Yeah, that is wild. And I, I challenge all of my listeners, I'll, I'll write these down so that they can kind of click and copy and paste them, but just spend some time looking at pictures of these different plants. And you can see why, you know, the morphological aspect of defining species, uh, this would be a challenging group to grasp. And my hat is off to anyone that took the time to look at what I'm guessing are very minute structures that would unite them and suggest to even suggest because I think even the most botanically savvy among us would look at these and go, no way are these related. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, even up at the top of Haleakala where tourists are constantly looking over into the, the the magnificent crater of Haleakala. You can be standing next to a silver sword and next to a kupa oa, which is Dabaudia menziesii, at least the common one in those areas, and um, have no idea that those two things are closely related at all. And yet they hybridize there and you can find these bizarre hybrids growing down inside the crater Along the Sliding Sands Trail, if you hike down from the summit, you know, one of the most magnificent hikes in the national park system, and you run into these things, and they, they, you know, they do look intermediate between the two, but it would, I think most people that see them would have no idea that that was a hybrid between those two species. You know, they're so distinctive. Yeah, you'd, you'd have to know something deeply about both to go, oh, yeah, maybe, but <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's really phenomenal. And so, yeah, the group does definitely challenge people's perspectives and it it provides some of our best, you know, evidence for the degree to which adaptive radiation can lead to, you know, phenotypic change in a short time period, you know, when the opportunities are there. So that's, uh, you know, it's been a really instructive group that way. Yeah, uh, just an amazing study system. And so when you entered into this picture, right, this idea that they were related was hypothesized largely based on morphological evidence. So really, your task was to look at the genetic evidence and, and test these hypotheses of relationships and time. I mean, did you have any inkling going into this that you were going to unveil some very interesting results like these? Well, you know, I, um, I tried to be optimistic, but you know, it was a steep learning curve for me. I'm not really a lab person by nature. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm man. a klutz in the kitchen and, you know, didn't have a lot of great experiences <laughs> in undergraduate chemistry labs and that kind of thing. And so it was uh, something, you know, I really had to care deeply about trying to resolve to put myself through that. And the, there were a lot of failures. I think I had a year of just solid failures of <laughs> trying to get anything reasonable happening in the lab. Wow. Part of the problem is these plants 
Um, one of the things that makes them resilient to drought in the case of the California tarweeds and some of the Hawaiian ones too that are found in the drier habitats is, you know, they have mucilage in their leaves that tends to co-precipitate with DNA. Oh, good. Yeah, so it can make life miserable, you know, in, <laughs> in the lab. You know, it's clearly something that the plants, uh, without that, the plants probably wouldn't be nearly as interesting as they are, but <laughs> but it was a real challenge to figure out how to deal with that alone, you know, just to get enough DNA to work with, because back then you needed a lot of DNA because we didn't have mm. PCR. And, but yeah, once I finally got some good, you know, some results that actually could be interpreted, it became clear right away that I'd sort of hit the jackpot with this because I had enough California tarweeds on the gel, you know, that I'd run you know, on the Southern blot that I'd probed that I could compare that to the wine silver sword representatives. And I could already see that there were some California tarweeds that were more closely related to the silver swords than they were to other California tarweeds. Wow. And so at that point it was very clear that it was worth pursuing further, <laughs> you know, in haste. Yeah, that must have been a very exciting day, couple of days, whatever it was, but wow. Yeah, it was really remarkable. And I was still a little skeptical I was going to be able to get enough data to really have the statistical power, you know, to show the result as robustly as I, you know, really needed to. But, you know, I, I turned out to be lucky and I did end up getting enough data. So, hmm. yeah, so that was a... That was a super inspirational moment. And yeah. Time. And lucky for the rest of us that have enjoyed the fruits of that labor. So kudos, but. Oh, no doubt somebody else would have jumped on uh, yeah. it. Soon. Fair enough. You know, but, after, but it was yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was fun. And I, I was so happy to have the expertise, you know, of, of my mentor and, and actually his student, Jerry Carr in Hawaii, who was uh, acting chair of botany there for many years at the University of Hawaii, and who was one of my major professor's first students. And he had actually <laughs> monographed the Hawaiian Silver Sword Alliance. Nice. And done a lot of the chromosomal work with, with Don Kaios, my major professor. So they were actually working on that while I was doing the molecular work. And so we were, you know, that was a really active moment in the <laughs> 80s there. Yeah, you don't get those a lot. So it's nice to hear from the people that have actually experienced it. But thinking about sort of the North American side of this whole ordeal, it's weird enough to look at all of the pictures of these silver swords or see them in person and go, holy cow, these are related. And I did this to my partner earlier when I told her I was I was excited to talk with you and showed her what you work on. I showed her the tar weeds and then I showed her the silver sword. She goes, what? <laughs> and so let's talk about the tarweeds a little bit because this is a, a really interesting group of plants, but looking at them, I would never in a million years connect the dots to them, even pot, let alone the distances involved in that relationship. But just physically, they don't look anything like the Hawaiian Silver Sword Alliance. Yeah, not it doesn't it definitely doesn't grab you at first at all. And it's um, once you start looking more closely at the reproductive characters, there are some characteristics there that that link them, but they're tricky because most of the Hawaiian species lack the ray flowers that around the periphery of a sunflower head. And a lot of the really diagnostic features for members of this tarweed group are tied up in either the, the ray flowers or the bracts that surround them, the oh, involucral bracts. And those are missing from the members of the group that particularly have discoid heads that lack those ray flowers. They're the interior um, receptacular bracts have taken on the function of the involucre and look just like an involucre. Wow. And so they they can really fool you. I mean, Ewan Kalkos figured it out basically that there is an inner ring of receptacular bracts inside of the head of a California tarweed that has rays. So just to the interior of the rays and the involucral bracts, there's a little ring of receptacular bracts that surround all the disc flowers, but there usually aren't any in the interior of the head, you know, inside there further. And so you get these things in Hawaii that just have that outer ring of uh, receptacular bracts that look like filaries and nothing to the inside. And so, you you know, it's easy to not recognize what they are. So, yeah, but the, fortunately, the silver swords themselves, the Argyrosiphiums, have those gray flowers and associated bracts. And if you really focus on those, you know, you can convince yourself without too much work that they're probably tarweeds. But, um, you know, and they're sticky. 
and have some similarities in in their odor to say members of Raylardella, mm. which is an obscure genus of California tarweeds. But that's a genus that wasn't even realized to be a California tarweed until Phil and Crawford's work. So, um, you know, that's there have been a lot of confusing things about the group that led to issues. But yeah, that stickiness of those involucral bracts that surround the rafe roots, you know, probably really important in animal dispersal, mm. you know, by mammals on land, uh, you know, and over, you know, modest distances, but by birds, you know, going out across water bodies like the Pacific and, you know, almost certainly the, either the rafe roots or some, the pappus, which are the persistent sepals at the top of the disc roots in a lot of these closely related California tarweeds, they easily get tangled up in your clothing or, hmm. um, you know, they can attach as well. And so, you know, there are a number of ways that the fruits of one type or another, ray or disc, could have become attached to a bird and been carried to the Hawaiian Islands. But the, but the crazy thing is that the Hawaiian silver swords and most of the members of the alliance are strongly self-incompatible. Oh. And there's only one seed per fruit. So, you know, it's a major bottleneck to establishment in a situation like that, huh. where, you know, you, you end up in this uncomfortable situation of having to argue for a number of very unlikely scenarios. I mean, one likely enough just to get there in the first place, but then you have to have two, you know, that are reproductively compatible. And, um, you know, there are a number of ways one might explain how that could have happened, but it, the probabilities, you know, go into various fractions of infinitesimal, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's a very rare exception to Baker's rule that long-distance colonists will tend to be self-compatible, you know, for obvious reasons that if you're self-compatible, you can establish a population from one individual, which you can't do if you're strongly self-incompatible, unless you can persist vegetatively for a long mm. period of time. And then, you know, accumulate somatic mutations that, you know, are expressed in reproductive meristems. And so you can get some S allele diversity, you know, that way, self-incompatibility allele diversity that can allow the system to resume. But, you know, then we're talking long periods of time of persisting vegetatively. So, yeah, it's a really incredible situation of how they got established and something that continues to be of interest. I mean, going yeah. back to what you had said about parsimony, building these trees with the easiest solutions possible, it almost sounds like what you were finding <laughs> asked you to go in the complete opposite direction to kind of reconcile the relationship results that you were seeing. But it's so cool yeah. to kind of get that perspective and go, no, I mean, the, what's more unlikely is that two organisms would share that much DNA and be completely unrelated. Uh, so it's it's this amazing balancing act that you probably had to play and, and argue for uh, ad absurdum with reviewers and, and at conferences. I'm sure there was some tension there for a little bit. <laughs> well, fortunately for me, before I actually had to, you know, was going to conferences and was actually, you know, applying for, you know, looking for jobs. Once that relationship became clear between the one group of California tarweeds, what I call the Madia lineage or Madia lineage, and the Silver Sword Alliance, it really narrowed the focus down to looking at those particular California tarweeds. And I had collected some of those things in the field recently, you know, for part of the study, of course, to get the DNA in the first place. And I was growing them in the greenhouse. And my major professor was also growing members of the Silver Sword Alliance because he had this program of looking at chromosomes during meiotic division in hybrids. And so we had to grow them to make the hybrids. And so I was able to attempt crosses between members of the California tarweeds and the silver swords. And so right away, I I grabbed Carl Quistia murii, which wasn't called at that time. I erected the genus Carl Quistia in honor of Sherwin Carlquist. Nice. It was the lineage that appeared to be the closest relative of the silver swords. And so I was able to take pollen from that, dust that onto stigmas of Debaudia levigata, which is a wet forest tree, small tree to large shrub from Kauai and got lots of seeds set and grew those up to be very vigorous hybrids. Wow. And we were able to verify, in collaboration with Don and Jerry, we looked at chromosomes, and sure enough, they were definitely F1s. Oh. Um, they didn't have good chromosome pairing. They were sterile as mules, but really strong <laughs> hybrid vigor. 
uh, grew up to the top of the greenhouse and back down again, but just wacky, crazy, confused plants that didn't know really what they wanted to be. Wow. And so that was, once people saw hybrid that was vigorous between the two groups, that just completely erased all the controversy. And I, I walked into it, you know, in kind of a position of strength to be able to yeah. show that. And people, you know, skeptics were pretty immediately convinced that there was something to it. And subsequent to that, we made a number of other hybrids involving that same little group of California tarweeds that the Silver Sword Alliance is phylogenetically nested in. Mm. And we're able to make other hybrids too. So yeah, it didn't. Re- I didn't encounter a lot of resistance, but also the '80s were a time where vicariance biogeography was very strong, you know, and it was a field that really treated long-distance dispersal like biogeographic noise, frankly, hmm. biogeographic noise, and um, you know, long-distance dispersal really wasn't something that people were hypothesizing a lot at that time, and so you know, I wondered whether I might encounter resistance to the idea. And I have encountered some resistance over the years, but mm-hmm. it wasn't as significant as I had feared. Wow. I mean, just hybridizing the thinking of doing that, that is so cool. <laughs> it's like a geeking out sort of greenhouse experiment. Like, I'm amazed. That is so awesome. But, you, you know, you, you think about long distance dispersal. I mean, this is the key here. And, you know, Hawaii, for all intents and purposes today, is relatively easy to get to. You can jump on a plane, travel for a few hours, and you're there. And I think we take for granted just how isolated that archipelago truly is. And so the fact that mm-hmm. anything got there is amazing. But then you think of what it takes, like you said, a bird or something to fly over the Pacific from the coast of California, taking probably multiple seeds of these individuals with them and then the end result. And one of the coolest aspects of genetic work and, and the phylogenetic reconstruction, especially in this context, is looking at the timeframes, being able to estimate the timeframes involved in this. So let's start with when did these hypothetically arrive to the island and how do you figure that out? <laughs> yeah, so I was really fortunate back in the 1990s to be working with Mike Sanderson, who's a super genius colleague that works on, he was very early on trying to work out good methods for diverse uh, divergence time estimation and um, that sort of thing. And so uh, we were able to to do this with the very same data that I worked up from my postdoc. I was in Tucson and generating a lot of sequence data early on from nuclear ribosomal RNA genes that, you know, had proven to be really useful for looking at phylogenetic relationships. And so those sequence data also have a nice property that that particular region tends to evolve relative to a lot of gene regions at a relatively clock-like rate for reasons that aren't wholly understood. But in any case, that was, um, we could not reject a molecular clock using, you know, likelihood ratio test using comparing topologies uh, you know, that enforced or didn't enforce a molecular clock. And so we had a really wonderful situation because usually you can reject a molecular clock, but not for this data set that included these closest Californian relatives and the Hawaiian species. And so in 1998, we published a paper where we had to use some suboptimal means of trying to calibrate nodes because, you know, we didn't have fossil data. So basically, we just came up with the idea that the California tar weeds, which were clearly the ancestors wouldn't have really begun to diversify in any great way prior to the origin of the Mediterranean climate. They're Mm. pretty restricted to Mediterranean climatic conditions. You know, we have wet winters and dry summers, and those don't really come into California's history till around 15 million years ago. Oh, wow. And pretty abruptly, I mean, California wasn't even, a lot of it wasn't even there then, you know, (laughs) I mean, it created a lot of terrain from island arcs and the like over this time, but Western North America, at least, you know, started to experience this climatic change pretty abruptly. And so we used that as kind of a maximal calibration for the California tarweed group and then estimated an age of the Silver Sword Alliance that came out to be about the age of the oldest high island of Kauai. Wow. So, you know, we figured, well, that's probably about as old as they can be because we've used an age for the calibration that's about as old as the California tarweeds might be. And so it looked like the group isn't one of these groups like the Hawaiian lobeliads, which is even more diverse in Hawaii, that seems to have had its start on one of the older islands out to the west that's now, you know, largely 
eroded and subsided away. So, you know, I'll be to the west of Kauai, the Leeward Islands, you know, the Leeward Chain. A lot of those used to be high islands as well, you know, prior to 5 million years ago or so. But it looks like the Silver Swords came in when Kauai was already there. So likely a contemporary radiation, so younger than we might have thought. And, you know, that was exciting because that suggested that the radiation happened faster than we might have. And um, and then more recently, Michael Landis, now at Washington University, who's really into bi- historical biogeography and has made some really inno- major innovations with these paleogeographic approaches, uh, collaborated with me and my graduate student, now 23andMe geneticist, Will Freeman, <laughs> in a paper published in 2018 in Evolution to re-examine this question with a little bit more rigor. Um, you know, with new methods and, and came up, we came up with an even younger age. Oh. And now it's easier to say that the California tar, the radiation not only started within the contemporary chain of islands, but also that the dispersal event from California to Hawaii probably happened within the contemporary island history. So, you know, it isn't a situation where Something from California got to one of these older islands that's now mostly nothing and then managed to disperse to Kauai, for example, before everything out to the west went extinct. It looks like probably the California ancestors were, um, you know, got out there, you know, relatively recently. Wow. So, yeah, that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And I mean, those moments even as someone seasoned in this and kind of understands the process of evolution and can comprehend it on a on a molecular scale, especially that has to have a moment where you just have to sit down and go, oh, what did we just uncover? Because, and the other question is, is like, was this a single event? Do you have the genetic evidence to know that like it was one ancestor or was it multiple different tarweeds somehow got their seeds there around the same time? And we see a couple others that came out of it. Well, great question. Um, because uh, even though we can't really see any evidence that there were two events in Hawaii, you know, as we as one might think that there might have at least been two, you know, seeds that arrived, which could have come simultaneously. There is evidence from work done back in the 1990s in collaboration with Michael Perugin's lab, uh, NC State, North Carolina State, and with Rob Robichaud, uh, his lab at University of Arizona. Rob was my po- one of my postdoc mentors with Michael mm-hmm. Donahue, um, that study looking at floral homeotic genes, uh, nuclear genes, was able to show that the Hawaiian Silver Sword Alliance is of hybrid ancestry. So there are two different lineages within that Madia lineage that um, diploid lineages that got together and produced an allotetraploid. So they produced a polyploid, you know, with genomic doubling following hybridization. We don't know where that event occurred. In all likelihood, it occurred in California, and the tetraploid ancestor of the Silver Sword Alliance went extinct in California after it dispersed to California. Because there's no allotetraploid that um, we know of in California that has the right relationship to the Silver Swords to be a, you know, to be a viable prospect to have served that, you know, to have been that ancestor. So, yeah, that's, people have gotten into arguments with me about this and, you know, thought, well, maybe those were the two things that got to Hawaii independently, hybridized when they got there and created the the allotetraploid there. And then the two diploids went extinct in Hawaii. You know, the problem is, you know, we're dealing with infinitesimal probabilities of all these events. So (laughs) how do you, you know, compare those things? But but that is an interesting wrinkle, and it also goes very much along the lines of what's being seen in a lot of cases of adaptive radiation, where there's a hybrid event that predates in the not-too-distant past the onset of this major a major adaptive radiation. You know, so the kind of recombination you can get when you bring together interfertile species that have had evolutionarily divergent histories you know, is way beyond what you can get in a norm, you know, within or between populations of what we might call a species. And so having that kind of hybrid ancestry, you know, might set up a group to be more prone to diversifying and being able to take advantage of ecological opportunities offered by the environment in a situation where 
you know, ecological release would be favored in the absence of competitors or other organisms that interfere with you, you know, like in an oceanic island that's, hmm. you know, been very little settled by plants to that point or by herbivores, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. And this is such a cool example of really how the scientific process works. You find data, you collect it, you analyze it, you come up with a narrative that best explains it, but then you have additional questions that are built off of that. And when you know certain events probably happened or likely happened at this time period, then it becomes how do we refine our data collection or testing methods to start answering the new questions we've just generated? Because I'm sure every time you kind of round the corner and see the finish line, you realize there's a much more distant set of obscure finish lines way off in the horizon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, you never get to the bottom of it completely. There's always more questions that are generated by data. So, you know, that's just kept us kind of following along on new paths all the time. Like recently, we just had an amazing finding that I'm not sure I completely believe it, but it puts a whole different perspective on the, the adaptive radiation. And this has come from work with my grad student, Will Freeman and Ken Wood from the National Tropical Botanical Garden in Kauai. And what we were looking at was the history of habitat shifts within the Hawaiian group, within the Silver Sword Alliance. And, you know, we have all this diversity of dry, wet, and bog habitats that are occupied within this group. And so, you know, the exact way in which that adaptive radiation is unfolded has been difficult to resolve. Uh, because of phylogenetic uncertainties when some of these super young clades, you know, groups of island endemics that have just radiated super recently. But we took an approach where we're able to take into account the phylogenetic uncertainty, as well as the uncertainty in the model of ecological evolution, and still we're able to come up with very robust results suggesting that the diversification has been primarily from dry to wet habitats and, you know, the ancestors were probably dry adapted yeah. and uh, not just the ancestor, ancestral California tarweed, but also the ancestors that were involved in the dispersal between islands. Mm. And it looks like once things got onto a new island, we had divergence into wetter habitats and ultimately into bogs. But that, that was a fairly unidirectional process and that <laughs> once those dry adaptations were lost, you know, they didn't come back or if they those lineages weren't successful. There may have been niche preemption by the pre, you know, by the mm. relatives there that were already in the dry habitat. And it could be a complexity of trade combinations that make you really well adapted to dry habitats, um, you know, are tricky to re-evolve once lost. But it's something that, you know, we didn't really perceive. It really seemed like this might be a fairly freewheeling adaptive radiation. And now it looks like it might be evolutionarily a little more constrained in the way that it's unfolded. But we're now in the process of, we have a lot of phylogenomic data now. We just recently got back a bunch of sequence data from over 400 nuclear genes spanning the genome for a dense sample across the Silver Sword Alliance, California tarweeds, and even the broader Matae tribe, including the woolly sunflowers and arnicoid things, and hope to, you know, get a lot more information about, um, you know, the evolutionary details and hopefully learn a lot more about the ecological diversification. Wow. But those data are just now being, uh, literally being downloaded. <laughs> <laughs> Remarkable. This, I mean, exciting times, right? It's, this is like not something that kind of happened in your career. And now you're like, oh, okay, what's next? This is like an ongoing story and you keep refining it and refining it. But one thing I really want to kind of emphasize here is, you know, for people that don't work in this field or don't read the literature or really don't know what it's like behind the doors of scientific labs, uh, you know, this isn't something that you're just, eh, okay, we think it's this, we're just going to say this and we're the experts. So who's going to challenge on us? You're, you're constantly checking yourself and you're being very conservative in your estimates. Like you were saying, these, these clock estimates, and you, you are always erring on the side of caution, which makes these findings so much more robust. And even now you're saying, I don't know if I fully believe them yet, but more data could help us. I mean, this is just proof that, you know, it's it's not this simple, we just have data, we analyze it, we make up the story. You are constantly having to check the validity of every claim you're, you're trying to make. I mean, you can obviously hypothesize, but you have to always <laughs> enter with the caveat that this is a hypothesis, we still have to test it. <laughs> yeah, you know, there are always caveats, and there are a lot of variables we just can't control in, in, in you know, analytically, and 
you know, our data have been relatively limited to this point for asking some of these questions. So, yeah, I like to operate in a more cautious mode. I mean, it's hard not to speculate. And, uh, you know, I love speculating too. But yeah, I always have a, you know, you you don't want to stick your neck too far out. When, <laughs> you know, you, I mean, it's nice to um, to at least leave yourself a little bit of an escape hatch if the future results, you know, <laughs> you know, show a different story. And it's, you know, the mystery of nature is part of the beauty of it. And there's there's no doubt that it's a bottomless mystery. But, you know, I think we have to be sort of humble in going into this, you know, into these systems and realize that we're just scratching the surface in most cases when we're, you know, getting insights like this. And, you know, some of them are more robust than others. I think the California tarweed origin of the silver swords is pretty clear. But the details of that are something I want to learn more about from these data that I just mentioned were currently downloading uh, because, you know, that allopolyploid origin, you know, that hybrid origin and looking a little bit more into the precise details of that relationship could be really fascinating. Yeah. And what is also really important to think about is that this isn't just a simple question of which plants are related to which. Let's build a tree, walk away. We're done here. I mean, you've already unlocked ideas about biogeography, long distance dispersal, island biogeography, these questions about how evolution occurs, what leads to adaptive radiation, what happens when a, a group of plants suddenly ends up on a very remote island where there aren't a lot of herbivores or full niches to take advantage of. I mean, this is such a cool model system for so many different questions and so many different lines of evidence have to kind of collaborate together to tell a more complete picture. But again, never complete. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we're also fortunate in this group that we have a little clade out on uh, California islands that's derived from California tarweeds. Nice. And so in a little microcosm, you have some of these same processes playing out in uh, a place called Guadalupe Island, which is off the coast of Baja, California, about 150 uh, miles or so off the west coast in the Pacific. That's an oceanic island as well. I mean, a, a sea mount, I mean, a, a volcano. And there are three species of uh, a shrubby tarweed that has ancestry in the mainland in a different clade, not the Madia lineage and its other major lineage. That's changed in very similar ways to what you see in the Silver Sword Alliance. Wow. So it really, you know, you see that kind of thing and you start to think about, you know, evolutionary propensities and basically, you know, not rules of evolution, but interesting trends that that things might follow given similar opportunities. And, you know, every experiment in nature like this is going to be unique just due to historical accidents and all, but there are some amazing similarities there that we've also been fortunate to study as well. And uh, so that, that's another nice little feature of this group is you <laughs> have a little um, sort of another little experiment going on on the side on a small scale. That's so neat. Uh, and I mean, tarweeds, man, <laughs> what tricky little adaptive buggers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just within California, they've done so much, yeah. uh, you know, they're one of the major radiations in the California flora as well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they've changed in some ways to a greater extent than what we see in the Hawaiian system. And when it comes to different types of glandular structures, mm. Sherwin Carlquist studied these as well back in the 50s uh, and showed, you know, just tremendous diversity in all these glands we see across the different members of the group. So, you know, they're involved in their defense from herbivores since they're often flowering in the summertime when they're, you know, the main non-withered vegetation around in these grassland habitats, uh, you know, and so, and they have their own little ecosystem of insects and, hmm. and all the, that's focused around them. And that's another really interesting story is the food webs associated with tar weeds in the mainland that, uh, and there's similar things going on in Hawaii, by the way, with some of these. Wow land hoppers on, on members of the Silver Sword Alliance. I haven't studied those things myself, but <laughs> I, I've collaborated or at least, you know, you know, been fortunate to have colleagues working on those things and learn from them. Sure. And I mean, it's just proof that 
you know, these plants are not operating in a vacuum. These questions aren't restricted to just how do we end up with this many different weirdly looking species, but also what are the implications for biodiversity as a whole? All of these plants are going to have other organisms that, you know, partner or parasitize or some form of that. And, and these questions can bring up so many more different directions from, you know, defenses to herbivore radiations. I mean, wow, you really got yeah. stuck in on a great system here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I owe my whole career to this group, really, because nice. it's one of those groups that rewards hard work. You know, that's not always true. You know, you can beat your head against the wall in a lot of systems and, you know, they're fascinating, but still, you know, but less amenable to the tools at hand. And, you know, I just happened to have hit the sweet situation where the tools that were becoming available at the time I was starting you know, meshed pretty well with the, with this particular system in terms of offering insights. And so nice. Yeah. yeah. And so in the context of this system being so remarkable and, and so amenable to working with, I mean, there's, there's definitely some conservation issues here too, especially when you think oh, about yeah. uh, Hawaii in general, but I'm sure even the tarweeds in California, not all of them are faring well. So, you know, this also brings up like do we stand to lose some of these members of this amazing radiation if things aren't done to, to save them? Yeah. And unfortunately we already have, uh, yeah, our Gyrosiphium virescens is almost certainly extinct. The Haleakala green sword. I mean, there are green swords on Haleakala, but they are different species. Mm. Um, our grainum. But uh, virescence, yeah, sad story there. I mean, it was probably wiped out by herbivores. Damn. Last collected in the 1940s. But then a couple of putative hybrids were found mm. around oh, 20, 30 years ago. But, you know, they're self-incompatible. And so and they didn't flower at the same time. So we were trying, you know, I, I went through thousands of empty ovaries and finally found a few full fruits from oh. one the first flowering event and was able to coax one of those things to become a sizable rosette. And then there was a greenhouse mishap and, and uh, I'm not going to point fingers right now, but you know, it died and that was that. And so, you know, that's a sad story. And then um, Devadia Ken Woody, I named for Ken Wood, the collaborator that I mentioned who mm -hmm. discovered it probably a victim of hurricane Aniki that uh. stripped off the cliffs of Kauai and, you know, those habitats were reinvaded by weeds, you know, these places where the goats and pigs couldn't really reach. So probably extinct as well. But Damn. there's several species that are what we call PEP plants. Um, PEP is an acronym for the Plant Extinction Prevention Program, PEPP, mm -hmm. in, in uh, Hawaii. Um, these are plants that have less than 50 individuals left in the wild. And there are several members of the group that fall into that category and that are on kind of a downward trajectory, unfortunately. Dang. Yeah, and we've looked into some of the problems with yeah. some of these and found that um, there are problems with pollinator limitation where the pollinator appears to be gone for one species. And also another case where the number of individuals in the populations is just so low that there aren't enough, uh, there's not enough self-incompatibility allele diversity. Ooh. And so, you know, crosses don't result in seed set. So, I mean, things are going badly on Kauai, especially, I would say, for this, this group, which is actually the center of diversity. People think of the true silver swords on Maui and the Big Island, which is where they are endemic, members of Argyrosiphium. But most of the actual species diversity in the alliance is on Kauai, in Devoutia and Wilksia. Wow. And there, there are a lot of conservation challenges there that are the root of those are invasive animals, both um, vertebrates, you know, that eat the plants and um, destroy habitat, as well as invasive insects like the, the yellow jackets, you know, Vespula, which can kill the yellow faced bees that, uh, you know, prey on those. And those are the primary pollinators huh. of much of the Hawaiian flora. You know, that, that's the main group of native pollinators in the insect flora, insect fauna, sorry, um, genus Hylias, the yellow-faced bees. So, yeah, there's a lot of different things going wrong. And there's also Argentine ants uh, that have been introduced in Haleakala inadvertently through a picnic that went bad at Hosmer Grove. 
And uh, the, the Argentine ants will attack the nests of the hyleus bees, their ground nesting bees. And so there's been attempts to try to keep the Argentine ants within a certain perimeter, but it's very hard to defend. Yeah. And so, you know, you lose hyleus, you know, you still have um, honeybees, you know, which have become naturalized apis, but you know, apis mellifera, but native pollinators are better pollinators. Yeah. So there's a lot of different things yeah. going wrong there. Whew. Yeah. Sounds like I'm going to have to talk to some pet people, Ugh, get them on the podcast to talk about that side of it. That, uh, that's disheartening. There's a lot of work there going, going on. Yeah. Well, I'm glad people yeah. are attempting to write some wrongs. Yeah. So yeah, the, in California, you know, about a third of the California tar weeds have some kind of California native plant society listing as rare or sensitive or limited distribution. So that's, you know, they don't really fit the weed definition to that extent, you know, in the sense that they're, you know, something you don't have to worry about taking care of itself. There's definitely a lot of narrow and endemism and sensitivity to anthropogenic change there as well. So hmm. not a not as bad a conservation scenario as for the lion group, but you know, a lot of these plants occur in habitats have been highly invaded by mostly European weeds, you know, that have, you know, brought in during the Spanish era and have become totally naturalized. And, you know, the yellow star thistle is a huge mm -hmm. enemy of our weeds. It has very similar ecology and displaces them in many places. Um, so that progression has been, you know, that, that has been playing out for 100 years or so or more. Now, you know, where the tar weeds have been replaced by yellow star thistle, which is a continuing, you know, continues to invade parts of the state. Yeah, so I mean, I don't want to get too <laughs> here, but there, to answer your question, yes, there definitely yeah. are major conservation challenges Certainly. that aren't unique groups. Yeah, I mean, that's the point is, again, this is not happening in a vacuum. These are issues that face, you know, a lot of different species. And, and some of them happen to be really fascinating uh, stories to tell in the context of like evolution and deep time and all that. But, you know, this is why these holistic sort of ecosystem approaches to conservation and restoration are super important because everything's kind of connected and you lose one part. You never know what that downstream effect is going to be. Yeah, that's right. And Hawaii is especially sad that way because you have so many different aspects of ecological meltdown happening, you know, simultaneously. It's just such an invasive. I mean, you know, the system it's is is very sensitive to it to invaders to start mm -hmm. with. You know, I mean, it was all built. The whole flora and fauna there, the native fauna and flora, were built by invaders. You know, things that managed to get there from somewhere else and. Probably, and some of those things could have been pretty disruptive, you yeah. know, at first, but they were arriving in a, you know, relatively extended time frame. You know, one arrival might, they might have been a thousand years apart or more, <laughs> plenty of time to, for the things to settle down, uh, so to speak, you know, ecologically, and for these things to integrate into communities before the next arrival showed up, which is, you know, not the situation now. Everything's just being dumped in there on a time frame, you know, where the ecosystem's just swamped out by all these invaders. Right. Yeah. Time is, as your work clearly illustrates, a very important component to all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, it definitely has to come into the thought process yeah. in island biogeography. Yeah. Well, Dr. Baldwin, this has been amazing. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to tell us these stories and for the work you've done over the years. I mean, you have really uncovered some fascinating things that have opened the doors to many new questions. Uh, and maybe, you know, listeners right now will have a future studying in the system at some point. So thank you for telling about us about this. But if people want to find out about more about you, about your work, about the Silver Sword Alliance, what are some resources? Of course, I'll put links in the show notes for people. But where can they go to find out more? Well, there's actually a book that was published back in, it's now almost 20 years old, but nice. it's a nice compilation of studies of the silver swords and California tarweeds that Sherwin Carlquist took the lead on. And it's called Tarweeds and Silver Swords, Evolution of the Medione <laughs> Asteraceae. It's published by Missouri Botanical Garden Press. You can get a copy of it for probably five or 10 bucks at this point nice. from Missouri Botanical Garden Press and hardcover. And then most of my work has been 
otherwise published in the primary literature. If you go to ResearchGate, I've tried to post as much as I can. And a lot of the stuff I published in the group have been published in book chapters. So, you know, a lot of that's not easily available, but I'm trying to post a lot of that stuff in ResearchGate too. Um, so that's a nice free place to go where you don't have paywalls yeah. to find the literature. So yeah, that's that's a good place to find some of the work, you know, that's come out over the years. Fantastic. And so, again, I'll put up links for those so people can find them easily. Oh, great. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah, we have a paper in review right now in American Journal of Botany that I don't know if it'll get, get accepted, but hopefully it will. But <laughs> it goes into some of the latest findings that I mentioned about Ooh. this this um, biased directionality of ecological change. Nice. So that's something to look for, hopefully, in the next uh, you know six, nine months. Okay. We'll see. Well, again, if open door policy, if you ever want to come back and talk, uh, you're more than welcome. I mean, obviously, keep in touch. Send me those papers because I'm always happy to share resources with the listeners. But again, thank you so much for talking with us. This has been amazing to hear about. Oh, thanks a lot, Matt. I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course. And I would love to talk with you again sometime. Yeah, let me know. I have open door. Like I said, I'm always down to talk plants. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, hang All in right. there. Stay healthy. You too. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. How incredible was that? I can't tell you how interesting that conversation was for me to have, and I'm so happy I got to share it with you. Of course, all of the relevant links are in the show notes for this episode. Dr. Baldwin's research is one you definitely want to start to read and track down. And again, just go look up pictures of these plants. They are so cool, and it's so interesting to think of how diversification works and how just different members of a lineage can look after a certain amount of time and selection pressures. I thank him for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and I can't wait to see what comes out of his lab in the coming years. But that is it for this episode. A few things before I leave you today. First one being, if you're enjoying my book, In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, consider giving it a review wherever you purchased it from. Reviews help it reach a wider audience. If you haven't picked it up yet, consider doing that. I really appreciate everyone that's given it great feedback so far. It means the world to me. Also, you can continue to support the podcast by picking up some merch over at teespring.com slash stores slash plants. A lot of it's customizable and a portion of every purchase is being donated to places like the Rainforest Trust, the Nature Conservancy, and the Biodiversity Heritage Library. Finally, one of the best ways you can support the show and ensure that it can continue coming out each and every week for free is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. And it's more than just good feels for supporting the show. You're also getting great kickbacks, including multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. In fact, I want to give a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast, Danny, Paul, and Tara. All of them went over and signed up at the producer credit level, so they're getting the maximum benefit from our Patreon. So go check that out. Once again, it's patreon.com slash plants. And a big, big thank you again to Tara, Paul, and Danny, and everyone else who supports this show with their financial contribution each and every month. I could not be doing this without you. But that takes care of everything I needed to say. Thank you all again for listening. Tell your friends. But otherwise, hang in there, stay healthy, and be good to each other. But most importantly, Get outside if you can. Until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.